Tom Gentry. Remember Brother Gentry? Anyone remember him? Brother Gentry, missionary from Romania. Great man of God. And he stayed in our home for a few days many years ago. I was 15, 14 or 15. And uh, the Pro Bowl was, was being played here at the Belong uh, Stadium. And someone invited him to go. Of course, that was Sunday. And he said, uh, something to the effect of, well, it's, it's Sunday. So I, I won't be going. And uh, I really appreciated that decision that he had made. It reminded me of um, Eric Little. Who knows the name Eric Little? <laughs> Not Little, L-I, but it's L-I-D-D-L-E, Little. He was Scottish, and he was a runner. He was fast. And he ran in a really unusual way. If, if anyone uh, <clears throat> judged him for his style, he wouldn't have won anything. But he made it to the Olympics. And he ran funny. When he got going, he'd throw his arms back like this, and throw his head back, and just run. Well, that's not how you run, but that's how he ran. <laughs> and he was fast, and he was the winning, he was the secret of Great Britain's success of the Olympic team. But he refused. Listen to this. I will not, they had their, they had their tryouts on Sunday. For the Olympics. And he said this I will not run on the Sabbath. I will not run on the Sabbath. He felt, now listen to this, he felt that when he ran, that's what God made him for. So he could have said, This is what God made me for. This is spiritual. Therefore, I should do it on Sunday. I should race on Sunday. But he determined. This is the Lord's day. This is not the day for sports. This is not the day for entertainment. This is the day for worship and the rest. And boy, boy, he took some heat. Great Britain was looking to him to win the gold. He said, I will not run on the Sabbath. And they changed the schedule for him. 
He won gold. And then you know what he did? Then he did something really wild. He threw away that running ability to do something else. He became a missionary. In China. And he was killed as a martyr in China. He threw away his life. Was he killed as a missionary died of disease? I see one of you shaking your head back there. Yeah. The historians, yeah. church historians back there. The Japanese imprisonment. Okay, so not martyred, but well, he wouldn't have been there if he wasn't a missionary. So he was martyred. Yeah. So all that to say is illustration. Um, don't take me wrong. I'm not saying don't throw a football on Sunday. I'm not saying uh, don't play ping pong on Sunday. I'm not saying um, don't don't uh, exert yourself on Sunday. I am saying that I think we have forgotten the importance of the Lord's Day. And we American Christians, and forgive me if this is just getting a little bit hot in the collar and meddling a little bit, but I think we American Christians have got the idea that we can get by with just as little as we can. Drop in here on Sunday morning for 45 minutes to an hour, and we've done our duty. That's not church. Right. That's playing church. Yeah. Playing church. Hebrews is very clear. Yeah. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the matter of some is, yeah. but so much the more as you see the approaching. Right. So much the more what? Exhorting one another. Says, but exhorting one another, and so much the more. How do you do that? You have to be meeting together. I met a lady yesterday, Sam and I were uh, tracking doors in Moedi'i, um, over by where Grandma Jancy's door. And we met a lady, usually we don't meet people when we do it that way, uh, but we met a lady who said, you have, she said, she said like this, oh, you have a, she said fellowship or assembly? What did she say, assembly? Oh, you have an assembly? <laughs> said, yes. Which is, you know, we have a church here. And I said, uh, do you, do you attend an assembly? And she said, yeah, well, no, there's one in, on the mainland, and we watch it from, we watch it online here. Apparently there are many people in this, it's a messianic type of assembly. And uh, <clears throat> they, they don't have, there's several of them here that, that follow that, that way, but they don't meet together. They just watch online. And I began thinking, I, I'm thankful for online. I, you that cannot come to church and you're watching online, I'm glad you're watching. Um, but you that can, and you're just watching, <laughs> the method becomes the message. method becomes the message and if you are usually looking at your phone for entertainment that's your primary what you if you honestly look at the way you spend your time on your phone if it is primarily to entertain your brain then when you watch a service your brain takes that as entertainment and the very nature of worship is that you worship with God's people. Yeah. Nice. The house of God. Nice. Not the, not the uh, shack 
where you sit alone, but the house of God, the household of faith, the Bible speaks of. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. He didn't save you just to save you and give you a first. We love this phrase in American Christianity. A personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He did. But that's not all. He saved you to be in fellowship with himself and first John with us. Right. He is not building an army of one. He is building a, a, a holy temple. And each one of us that's part of that is a stone in that temple. And we have to be together. We have to make together. So that's not part of the Bible study this morning. That's just been on my heart for a little while, and I think that we need to be reminded of that. And um, it's interesting seeing how how uh, sickness can bring God's people together. And I've been seeing that this past these past few weeks. I've been observing. Of course, I've been part of it too, but also observing how some of you have really just poured yourself into helping, and we appreciate that. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to begin today. We're picking up the topic again. And we're going to go very quickly. I'll try to comment as little as possible because there's, there are so many scriptures to look at this morning. We're continuing and hopefully finishing today. The answer to this question, should we unhitch from the Old Testament? We covered about four reasons last week, four questions and answers to that last week. Unless you do this quickly, and then uh, we'll proceed into our Bible study today. The first question was, what does the New Testament say about why the Old Testament was written? And we saw from Romans and 1 Corinthians, it was for our learning, for our patience, for our comfort, and for our hope. It was to give us an example to teach us, to admonish us. All of that in those three verses. That's why the New Testament was written. Or excuse me, that's why the New Testament says the Old Testament was written. Question two. To the person without knowledge of the Old Testament, does the New Testament really make sense? And we looked at several passages there. Genesis of Matthew chapter one. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, <laughs> And I added a question mark. There's no question mark there. It's a period in our Bible because it's assumed that the reader knows something about David and Abraham. And then, of course, the genealogies. And, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and so on. Question three. According to the New Testament, what does God use his law, which is a part of the Old Testament, to accomplish? And that is to convert souls, to bring us to Christ. So without the Old Testament, we have thrown out, if we, if we unhitch, if we unclass from the Old Testament, we are throwing out the tool that God said he uses to bring us to Christ. And so if, if we're throwing that away, and if we don't want that tool, that one thing that God said, this is what I will use to bring people to Christ, whose side are we on? Question number four. How did Jesus himself view the Old Testament? How did Jesus view the Old Testament? Well, in Matthew 19, he quoted Genesis chapter 2, almost verbatim, and he said, 
Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made the male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. He's quoting Genesis chapter 2. John 5, 47. But if you believe not his writings, Moses' writings, if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? And in Luke 24, he gave that first Bible, Old Testament chronological Bible study conference and on the road to Emmaus, a walking Bible conference. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How did Jesus view the Old Testament? Did he want us to want to get you in the Old Testament? Look like it. Today, there are several more questions I want to ask you with some scriptures to answer them, and we'll see if we can get through them all. And if not, we'll just pause and pick up some other time. Father, we thank you for the opportunity now that we have to open the Word of God together, to worship together. And uh, we thank you, Father, that we, can, that we have access to the throne of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, our Savior, who shed his blood and died for us, died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures and showed himself alive and proved that he was alive by many infallible proofs. And we thank you and praise you for that. We thank you for this good word, this good book, this perfect book that you put into our hands. And now I pray you help us to take it into our minds and into our hearts and live it out with our lives. We pray you glorify Jesus today. Speak to us. Uh, I pray you would cause your people to, to, to trust every word of your, of, your, of your truth, of your scriptures. And I pray that you would increase our faith. And I pray that our faith would not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Now, look at Ephesians chapter 5. The next question I want to ask you concerning should we unhitch from the Old Testament is this. What does the New Testament instruct us, New Testament Christians, to do with the Old Testament? Again, the question. What does the New Testament instruct Christians to do with the Old Testament? Because actually, you might be surprised that the New Testament teaches us to do several things with the Old Testament. It essentially says, here is how you should use the Old Testament. And just, well, maybe I'll mention that. Ephesians 5, verse 19. Ephesians 5, 19. We're going to look at just a few of the examples of what the Old Testament, what the New Testament says to do with the Old Testament. These are some of the really key ones. Ephesians 5, 19. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Okay? Keep your hand there and turn to Colossians chapter 4. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 16. Colossians 4 verse 16. Oh, that's the wrong passage. Colossians 3 and 16. Colossians 3 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. How? Here's how. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Okay, these two passages are basically the same. There are some differences. But what I want you to see is this. In these two passages, the same instruction or even command, we can say, is given to Christians. 
to New Testament Christians. What is that instruction? To sing using three kinds of singing. To, to worship God together using three kinds of song. What are those three kinds of song? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Let's go backwards. Spiritual songs are songs of testimony about the Lord. This is a very uh, basic and general uh, explanation of these three kinds, but here it is. Spiritual songs. Songs that we sing in testimony. Uh, I heard an old, old story how the Savior came from glory. That's a spiritual song. Um, Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Spiritual song. It's a testimony. Many of the songs written after uh, the late 1800s were testimony songs, spiritual songs. They're called gospel songs, but scripturally they are spiritual songs. And then you have, going backwards, you have hymns. Hymns, here's an easy way to remember. Hymns are songs of, uh, in praise to him. <laughs> hymns are songs in praise to him. Okay, They're songs of praise. Songs of praise to God. Um, let's see. And sometimes they overlap with spiritual songs because you can't sing testimony without praising God. But spiritual uh, testimony, or excuse me, hymns of praise to God be the glory, great things He hath done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son. That's a that's a hymn. Um, uh, my brain is uh, crown Him with many crowns, the Lamb upon His throne. That's a, that's a hymn. And so, if you look in your songbook, you can kind of figure out pretty quickly which is a hymn and which is a spiritual song. But then we're going backwards and we come to the first thing now, and it is Psalms. Psalms, what are Psalms? These are what we don't have very many of in our song books. And what typical hymn books, you don't have too many songs, we have a few. We have a few in our song book. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie. That's based very closely on Psalm 23. It's a song. It's a song. Um, if you look at, um, that's a song by Isaac Watts. Jesus shall reign. That is a, a versified psalm that's interpreted through New Testament truth. So, of course, in Psalm, I think, 71, you don't see the name Jesus there. But that song is about the millennial reign of Christ. And so Isaac Watts interpreted that, and he wrote a poem for that with Christ in mind. And so that is like singing Psalm, I think, 71. Is that right, brother? Psalm yeah. 71? Yeah. And so there are psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And when the Apostle Paul, in these two places, to these two churches, Ephesus and Colossians, instructed them to sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, what was he telling them to do? Well, let's not worry about the hymns and spiritual songs right now. Let's think about the psalms. He was teaching them to go to that section of the Old Testament that's called the Book of Psalms, the longest book in the Bible, and to use that book as their songbook. As their Psalter. As their Psalter. Alright? 150 chapters or 150 songs in the book of Psalms. And there is no shortage of material in those Psalms to keep you busy singing. Right. We are instructed as New Testament Christians to sing from the book of Psalms. I've taught on this before, and we don't need to teach on it again right now about how to do that. But what I want you to see is this. If we, as New Testament Christians, are instructed to sing psalms, then that means that we're supposed to be spending some time in the Old Testament. Right. Because you can't sing from a psalm book or from a psalter 
And you get to know it regularly, or sing it regularly, without getting to know it. And if you're going to get to know it, you've got to spend some time. You've got to spend some time. How can we sing songs? Excuse me. How can we sing songs if we're not familiar with the Old Testament? And there are several of the Psalms that mention details that are only found in the Old Testament. They're never mentioned in the New Testament. And so if you sing those Psalms, and let's say you say, okay, well, he says sing Psalms, so I'm going to sing Psalms, but I'm going to ignore everything else in the Old Testament. Because that's Old Testament. That's not for me. I'm a New Testament Christian. If you sing the Psalms, but you don't know the Old Testament, then, then many of the Psalms will not make sense. Because there are details, there are stories recorded in the Psalms that are only found in other parts of the Old Testament that the New Testament never touches. Here's some, here's some examples. Don't worry about writing them down because they're many. But let me just, just, just rattle off these numbers of Psalms so you get a better idea of what I'm trying to say, that there are so many details in the, Old Testament, in the Psalms that the New Testament doesn't mention, here they are. Or here are some of them. Take breath. Psalm 48, Psalm 60, Psalm 68, Psalm 77, 78, 79, 80, 81, 83, 84, 87, 89, 99, 102, and 105. All Psalms that contain details that the New Testament never even hints at. So how can you and I, as New Testament Christians, sing the Psalms un with understanding, with knowledge, knowing what they are talking about, unless we know something about the Old Testament? We... Should we unhitch from the Old Testament? Psalm 119. Let's look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest of the song. Psalms it is the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. And who can tell us? What is the theme of Psalm 119? What is the main focus of this chapter? God's word. God's word, the word of God. When if you sing Psalm 119, you are singing about the word of God. And the psalmist, whoever he was, uh, many people think it was David. Mr. Spurgeon is convinced that the style shows that it was David. We don't know who he was. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit, whoever he was. He magnified the Word of God. That's what he did. And he used several different ways to describe the Word of God. Let's look at Psalm 119, beginning at verse 1. And let's count the ways that the Word of God is referred to in the first eight verses. Because Psalm 119 is divided or broken down into sections of eight verses. And each one, each section begins with the, the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So you have in some of your Bibles, you see the word Aleph. That's the first letter. It's, we would say that's A for us. Uh, Bet, B-E-T-H, that's the second. Uh, number three, verse 17 is Gimel, that's the third letter. And so it goes through. And the way Psalm 119 is set up is that in Hebrew poetry, it didn't rhyme like ours does. It began with the same letter. And so the first eight verses of Psalm 119 
begin with the Hebrew letter or character Aleph. And the next eight begin with Bet. And the next eight begin with Gimel and so on. And that's what that means. Some of you have the Hebrew character in your Bible. And some of you have the Anglicized Aleph, Bet, Gimel, uh, Dalet, and so on. <clears throat> the psalmist loved God's word so much that he took the time, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to write this massive, long, epic poem praising the Word of God, thinking of as many ways as he could to magnify the Word of God, and not one of these 176 verses is the same. They're similar. There are similarities, but not one is the same. Every one brings out a different facet of this diamond called the Word of God. Let's look at Psalm 119, beginning at verse 1. Let's count the ways that the psalmist describes God's word. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the, number one, the law of the Lord. Verse two. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies. That's number two. His testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. Verse three. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. Verse four. Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. Verse 5, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Number 6, Then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. Verse number 7, I will praise thee with uprightness of heart when I shall have learned thy righteous judgments. Verse 8, I will keep thy statutes. Oh, forsake me not utterly. You see that? He doesn't say thy word here. He does say it later in the psalm. But he uses these eight different ways in eight verses to express different aspects of God's word. And then throughout this psalm, he looks at God's word from different angles. He praises it. He calls out to God's word. He talks about uh, uh, loving God's word. He talks about seeking God's word. He talks about obeying God's word. He talks about running uh, according to God's word. He talks about God's word giving him life. Magnifies the Lord God. Now, out of these 176 verses, there are three that don't seem to speak of God's word directly. There are verse 90, verse 122, and verse 132. All of the rest. So, you math wizards, that's a bad word, isn't it? Uh, you math geniuses. Help us. This is a tough one. 176 minus 3. I love that voice sense of humor back when you did this. 173 verses speak of God's word. In the longest song, in God's songbook, the songbook that God gave his people for the Old Testament and for the New Testament as well. Should we unhitch from the Old Testament? It says two times in the New Testament, it tells us to sing the Psalms. If you sing the Psalms, you're singing from the Old Testament. You're singing about God's Word, which when it was written was the Old Testament. You're singing about details that the New Testament does not, does not record. You're singing the Psalms, you're spending time in the Old Testament. Should we unhitch from the Old Testament? 
Next question. How did the apostles view the Old Testament? Hmm. How did the apostles view the Old Testament? Well, why does it matter what the apostles thought about the Old Testament? You know, weren't they just men? Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 and let's see how the Lord uh, feels about the apostles and what he said about their authority. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 19. And of course, we know that when we say apostle, we're not talking about someone on Facebook who calls himself bishop, apostle, father, husband, or husband, father, pastor, podcaster, something like that. And we're talking about 12 men that Jesus Christ selected to be his witnesses. That's what the word apostle means. And these men were witnesses of, uh, they had been uh, baptized by John, and, or excuse me, They've been uh, baptized. Eleven, 11 of them eventually were baptized by John. The Apostle Paul, of course, was not baptized by John. But all of them, except Paul, had been eyewitnesses of the Lord from the beginning of his ministry, beginning with the baptism of John. Excuse me, I misspoke. Beginning with the baptism of John, they saw Jesus baptized. Excuse me. They saw him baptized. I got that wrong, didn't I? I didn't have coffee until just now this morning. They were not baptized by John. They saw Jesus baptized by John. And then they witnessed his ministry for three years or so, three and a half years. And they were witnesses of his resurrection. Of course, Judas did not witness his resurrection. He committed suicide. And the Lord chose a replacement, the Apostle Paul. So 12 men. The Lord chose these 12 men. And of course, the Apostle Paul was an eyewitness of his resurrection because the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And so here is what the Apostle Paul said about the, the authority of, of the, the Apostles. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse, verses 19 and 20. Now he is talking to Gentile believers, primarily Gentile believers. And he's, he, first in chapter 2 he told them, here's your condition before you you met before you trusted Christ. You were outside of the promises of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise, all these things. But now, but now, but now, in Christ, things are different. Verse, uh, beginning verse 19. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Verse 20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So the very foundation of the church stand these men. The apostles. The apostles. Whatever they, and some say that the prophets here were the prophets in the early church before the New Testament was finished. Could be. It could be that the prophets refers to the Old Testament because the church is built upon that. Could be, could be. But I want you to focus on this right here, the foundation of the apostles. The apostles were his witnesses. A few weeks ago, I preached about how the Lord prayed all night and then the next day he chose the 12. And that was outside of dying for our sins, that was the greatest work he did, was training those men 
And then he sent the Holy Spirit to empower them and teach them and lead them unto all truth so they could record, so they could both preach for him and record the New Testament for us. So whatever they have to say about the Old Testament is worth listening to. So let's look at a few examples, and I think we'll have to finish with this, with this, with answering this question. What the, how did the apostles view the Old Testament? Let's look at Acts chapter 2 for our first example. Now, how did the apostles view the Old Testament? Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, um, beginning at verse 17. Uh, verse, verse, verse 15. And the context is that, that the apostles began speaking in languages that they had never learned before. And they were speaking in languages that were known to uh, something like a, a 13 different groups of people that had come to Jerusalem to worship God uh, at that time for that feast. And the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and about 118 others, uh, a total of 120 or so. And the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they began to speak in languages they did not know. The Bible word is tongues. And we have this funny idea because we have heard it so long, so often, that tongues means gibberish. If you know anything about your Bible, you know that the word tongue does not mean gibberish. It means a language. It means a language. The miracle was... Not that they were speaking in gibberish that no one could understand. The miracle was that they were speaking in languages that 13 different groups of people who were Jews or Jewish proselytes but spoke a different language as their mother tongue and were in Jerusalem there for that meeting, they could understand. That was the miracle. They could understand these people, these Christians, speaking in a language. I am from media. And I understand him. I am from Parthia. And I understand him. And, and, and these guys that were speaking these, these, these languages had never studied them before. Maybe never even heard them before. The Holy Spirit gave them that, that gift at that moment. And some people said, oh, these men are full of new wine. They're drunk. And the Apostle Peter shot that idea down. In verse 14 But Peter standing up with the eleven Lifted up his voice and said unto them Ye men of Judea And all ye that dwell at Jerusalem Be this known unto you And hearken to my words For these are not drunken As ye suppose Seeing it is but the third hour of the day It's early in the day But this is that Which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Oh, the Apostle Peter is preaching his first public sermon. And according to big, famous pastor guy in Atlanta, the Apostles wanted us to unhitch from the Old Testament. The Apostle Peter stands up, he says, Hey, all of you, listen to me. Listen. These men aren't drunk. This is what the prophet Joel talked about. And what does he do? He quotes from Joel. Right. By the way, don't raise your hand. But how many of you have read Joel? Thank you, Will. Don't raise your hand. 
It's okay. If you did, you can't. <laughs> if you haven't, don't raise Years ago, I saw a, a Jack Chick book. How many of you know Jack Chick books? Yeah. Yeah, the smallest, but he had, he had a book too. And he had one about Bible reading, about how important it is to read your Bible. And he said, that's called a cartoon of a man standing there looking at this man with a beard. You know, they're both wearing robes because they're in heaven. And he says, can you imagine if someday you get to heaven and you have to say this to Habakkuk? Well, and the picture was of two men and the man looking at him saying, I'm sorry, I never took time to read your book. <laughs> Did Peter want to unhitch from the Old Testament? He begins his first public sermon, and the first thing he does as an apostle preaching his first public sermon is launch into and grab a hold of the Old Testament. He doesn't unhitch from it. He hangs on to it. Yeah. Look what he says here in verse uh, Acts chapter 2, in verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. Oh, who spoke the words of the Old Testament? Who inspired them? You ever heard this phrase, thus saith the Lord. That's Old Testament. Unhitch from thus saith the Lord. If you want to unhitch from thus saith the Lord, if you want to unhitch from this is what God said, then who is motivating you? That's right. Who is guiding you? Who is leading you? Is that the Holy Spirit? Acts chapter 2, 17, it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and so on. And he continues on all the way through verse 21. So from verses 17 through 21, he quotes from Joel chapter 2. On history of the Old Testament? How did the apostles view the Old Testament? Let's continue. Same sermon. Look at verse 25. Verse 25. For David speaketh concerning him. Concerning who? Concerning Christ. For David speaketh concerning him. Oh, Peter, can you tell us how you know what David said? Because David lived 700, 1,000 years before you said this. Peter, please tell us, how do you know what David said? For David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also, my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. You know he, what he was quoting here? Psalm 16. So he quoted from Joel, chapter 2. He quoted from Psalm 16. Did Peter want us to unhitch from the Old Testament? That man in Atlanta said that the apostles wanted us to unhitch from the Old Testament. Did they? Look at verse 34. Acts 2, verse 34. For David is David. Here comes David again. Again, if you didn't know the Old Testament, you wouldn't know who David is, right? This wouldn't make any sense. Even if you didn't know exactly what he... Which is what he's quoting from, you wouldn't know. Why is David, why is it important what David said? Why does that have any authority? Verse 34. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself. Huh. Peter, Peter, I have a question for you, sir. How do you know what David said himself? How do you know? This train of thought making any sense? Amen. 
The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy, fool, thy foes <coughs> thy footstool. Quoting from Psalm 110. Hmm. What section of the Bible are Joel and Psalms found in? That's from the Old Testament. How did the apostles, who are the foundation of the church, how did the apostles view the Old Testament? Well, this one, preaching his first public sermon, filled with the Holy Spirit, quoted from the Old Testament three separate times, extensively. He didn't say, you know, I think it says somewhere back there, like I do, you know, when I try to quote a verse, I can't remember. <laughs> he said, Joel said, and he quoted for five or six verses. Then he said, David said, and he quoted from somewhere like Psalm 16, somewhere like uh, verses 5 through 11. Then he said, David said, he quoted from Psalm 110, verse 1. Boom, boom, boom. And long and fairly extended passages. Apparently, Peter had been spending some time thinking about the Old Testament. What about when Peter preached to Cornelius? Let's look at, let's look at uh, Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Now, the story, of course, that Cornelius was an unsaved Gentile, a Roman. He was an Italian. It says he was uh, a centurion. So he had some, some authority. He oversaw somewhere between 80 and 100 Roman soldiers. He had, he'd been through some battles himself, and he oversaw these men. The Bible describes him in verse 2 as a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He was a good man. You'd want this guy for your neighbor. He was a good man, but he was not saved. But God noticed. God took notice of this man. This man was responding to the truth that God had given him, and God sent an angel to him. And God sent the angel to him and said to him, Cornelius, thy prayers are heard. Now, here's what you need to do. Go to send someone, send a servant to this other town, to, to, to Joppa, and ask for this man named Simon. He's lodging. He's staying with another man named Simon, a tanner. And you'll find him there, and he shall tell thee words. It's interesting. The angel didn't come, this just in passing, the angel didn't come to Cornelius and say, Cornelius, you know what? You're such a good man. God has seen all your good works, and he accepts you. He, he gets you. He sees you just as you are. He's going to put you on a TV ad in the Super Bowl and say, he gets us. And leave you just as you are. Because you're a good man. He didn't say that. The angel didn't come and say, you know, Cornelius, you're such a good man. Jesus loves you so much. You have done so much for his people. For him, that he's just going to accept you into heaven just as you are. And if there's anything that, that some people call sin, that's not my place to judge. That's not my message. He didn't do that. And the angel also didn't come and say to him, Cornelius, let me tell the gospel to you. Just a few years ago, God sent his son down to this earth and he died for your sins and for, your, for you Gentile people and he rose again the third day and if you repent and trust him, he will save you. The angel also didn't do that because that was not the angel's job. 
because the Lord Jesus Christ gave his apostles that authority, and the apostles passed it on to all of his people. We have that authority today. God is not going to send an angel to our lost relatives, our lost friends, our lost neighbors, and the lost people of this island and tell them how to be saved. That's our job. Right. That's our job. But that's all it passes. Let's see what Peter said to Cornelius when he did get there. When Peter went to Cornelius and preached to him, Peter used four or five different lines of evidence to prove to Cornelius that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and to, to show him why he and all of his people, Cornelius, I like this guy, because Cornelius knew that the man of God was coming with a message for him. I have done everything I know to do, and now God has sent me a man to tell me what I need to do next. And so Cornelius gathered his friends and his family all together at his house. He wasn't even a saved man. And he, he gathered this first Gentile evangelistic meeting. <laughs> and he wasn't even saved. He got these people together. Peter went to preach to them. And he gave them all these different evidences. And Peter's final witness, his final evidence, that his final witness that he called to the stand. And now I call to the stand as my final witness and his best witness. Acts chapter 10, in verse 43, uh, verse 42. He's talking about the Lord Jesus here to Cornelius. It says, he commanded us, the Lord Jesus commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. Verse 43, he calls his final and most powerful witness to him to him, to Christ, give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Cornelius, all the prophets. And I think Cornelius must have known something about the Old Testament. He was a devout man. He was doing good things. Also, Peter says, Cornelius, sir, the Old Testament. I wasn't called that yet. The prophets, they give witness to him. They testify of him. He is the Savior. He, you believe him, you receive him, and you, you will have your sins taken away. How did the apostles view the Old Testament? Well, we don't have time to look at the others. But today, just think about how Peter, Simon Peter, this one apostle, who was the spokesman, really, for the apostles, think about how he viewed the Old Testament. Did he want us to unhitch from it? Or did he look at it as, this is our authority. This is our proof. This is what proves who Jesus is. Without this, we don't have the proof. Without this, we don't have a message. Without this, I can't prove that Jesus really did rise from the dead. I can say that we saw him, and he used that art, that line of reasoning, but he didn't clinch it with that. He didn't end with saying, Cornelius, listen, I saw him. I touched his hands. I ate with him. I hugged his neck. I fell at his feet. I wept with him. I heard his voice. He was, he doesn't say that. He says, 
We, he chose us to be his witnesses that he rose from the dead. And he says it kind of matter-of-factly. And then he clinches that argument with this. The apostles or the prophets. Yeah. The prophets give witness to him. Right. That whoever believes in him, whoever receives him, they will receive remission of sins. Right. That was his clincher. And then, and then you see the, the service. He doesn't even get to finish his sermon. Yeah. Because the Bible says, while Peter yet spake these words, he was still talking. The Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. Yeah. <laughs> he had to close with that. Right. How did the apostles view the Old Testament? Well, looks like they relied on it. Would you say that? Would you agree with that? They relied on it. They believed it. And in most basic terms, they weren't ready to unhitch from it. They were clinging to it. They were building on it. And then. The first question we ask today, what does the New Testament instruct Christians to do with the, with the Old Testament? Well, one of the things that the New Testament instructs us to do with the Old Testament is to use it as our songbook. So, should we unhitch from the Old Testament? Last week it was reasons, questions one through four. Today, questions five and six. Another time. Next two questions, maybe. Maybe one at a time. Really, actually, this one. How do the apostles do the Old Testament? It's going to take up probably an entire Bible study to see what Paul said about the Old Testament. Because Paul said a lot. Especially in the book of Romans. You're going to enjoy that one. You're going to be blessed to see God, how God's word ties together. Uh, you got to quote. There's, a, there's an image. Have you seen this image? Someone put together, they did, they used computer research somehow, and they, they put together cross-references from Old Testament, New Testament, and then whether direct references, quotations, or indirect references, and they laid it out so that you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way down to First um, John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, Revelation at the end, all of them laid out. And all the connections are, they're multicolored. And so there are arches, and it comes out looking like this, this rainbow of colors spanning Old Testament, New Testament, and the whole thing just meshes together. It's interconnected. You cannot, if you take one part out, you break something somewhere else. It is enmeshed together. You cannot separate the Word of God from itself. 66 books written by 40 different authors on three different continents over 1,500 years and not a contradiction, and it all fits together? That's right. Shall we unhitch from the Old Testament? <laughs> Let's not unhitch from the Old Testament. Let's hang on. Father, thank you for the Word of God, both Old and New Testaments. Help us to love it and live by it. We pray in Jesus' name.